0: and here we go another episode so hey everyone those tuning in now or watching in the replay or listening in um, welcome to another episode of Through Autistic Eyes. I am your host, Christopher D. Um, uh an autistic that was formerly a shut-in, now wanting to rediscover the world, and also known as the autistic guru, because I know someone in here would want me to say that, otherwise he would get pretty, <laughs> uh, <laughs> pretty if- iffy with me, so... And today, uh, I I have two guests actually this time. And our first guest here is uh, Dr. Carolyn. Um, I'm
1: day. I, I,
0: Op- I, I, I'm always afraid of butchering it. And uh, <laughs> she's an she's an award winning global consultant and social entrepreneur, providing technical support for not non-government organization also known as NGOs in Africa, Europe, North America, Latin America and the Caribbean so that they can successfully impact people's lives. She is also a seasoned resource, uh, mobilization and business development specialist with over 15 years of experience in the nonprofits, profit sector and her knowledge and expertise in international development has impacted communities across the globe and raised over $100 million and managed various projects with over $20 million. And she's very committed to making a difference in people's lives, especially among women, girls, and children in un- underserved communities that led her to establish the NGO Whis- Whisperer in 2018. As a consulting business with a global reach that provides technical support to nonprofits and social enterprises, and also a magazine along with it, and also an international speaker and evangelist for social entrepreneurship and quite a lot of awards, which would really extend this out with a very huge resume. So I really wanna thank you so much for joining me for tonight.
1: It's a great honor and our pleasure to be here today.
0: And also there's also, well, this guy as well here. So also, I believe he's also uh, like, called The Bald Avenger, The Tattoo Guru, Purvey of All Things, Common Sense, King of the Misfit Nation, and a Legend.
2: In my own mind.
0: Yeah, Woo! there we go. He said it. <laughs> so also been on here frequently. He's also um, uh, a co-founder of Anton J. Global. Uh, he's also been involved with a lot of nonprofits as well, including Feed the Billion, a new dawn, uh, chemo voice for life, I, and uh, I believe warrior ho- horse on top of that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I'm trying to remember off the top. Can
2: we say certain ministries? Did we say them already?
0: Yep, certain ministries. Why did I forget that? S E R T ministries. <laughs> 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 Jeez, I'm already embarrassing myself. <laughs> anyway, um, so I just want to thank you again for appearing again on our show to talk about the talk about uh tonight's subject which is the challenges that nonprofits face
2: My pleasure brother I'm always happy to be on your show you know that
0: Yes uh, and of course like like starting a business it's I guess you could say it's similar to starting a nonprofit in which both of them both of them you do need a plan so what are some of the things people need to keep in mind when wanting to start a nonprofit? And is there some sort of difference in the way you plan in comparison to a business? So I'll start with Carolyn.
1: Uh, that's a really good question. And um, there isn't much of a big difference because, you know, when you're starting a business, you always ask yourself, what problem can I solve? What hmm. am I going to provide in terms of services or products that I'm bringing to the market? That Customers who really need this. The same thing in the nonprofit sector, except with the nonprofit sector, you're looking at pain points in terms of the problems that people are facing in the community. You ask yourself the same question. There's something that we do called a needs assessment. And most funders will ask you, especially if you are a new nonprofit, they will ask you, Did you conduct a needs assessment? And who was engaged? Did you engage the people you serve? There's a very famous story of um, uh, I won't mention which international aid agency, but they went to a very rural village in uh, Southeast Asia, and they dug um, boreholes to help people get water, and mm-hmm. you know the women still went to the to the to the to the river to get water, and when they were asked why do you still go to the village to get water when we have tap water? They said the only way we socialize and, ha- and hear of the village gossip because they didn't have mobile phones back then, was when they went to the river to get water. That's when they had, oh, this is happening in the village. That's when they met their friends. That's when they exchange stories because everybody is in their homes. And in that culture, it's a very patriarchal culture. So you can't really go to someone's doorstep and sit and chat. So that is why they wanted to go to the river and they continue going to the river. When these people are building or drilling the boreholes and having tap water, They didn't ask these women, do you really need this? Why do you enjoy so much going to the river? They didn't ask them. They just thought, oh, everybody needs clean drinking water. No, the water was there. Sometimes people would use it. But the women, every day in the morning, they would go to the river. Why? Mm. Because there was no consultation, no needs assessment. So before you start a nonprofit, ask people on the ground, is this thing a problem for you? I can see it as a problem, but it might not be affecting them. Another thing that you need to check is, are there non-profits already implementing programs that you want to implement? There's no need for you to duplicate efforts, rather help them to raise funds to implement their programs as a philanthropist than setting up another non-profit that's competing with an existing one.
2: Okay, Jason? I just want to sit here all night and listen to her say, to the Riva. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. I love it. Um, so, so, you know, starting a, a, a 501c3 or a charity of any kind is exactly like a business, as she just said. And, and it really comes down to, you know, in, in my language and uh, of business, it comes down to falling in love with the outcome. your customer right Mm -hmm. and it and then when you're dealing with charities you really have two customers just like a magazine or or a newspaper has two customers it has the reader and it has the advertiser in any charity you have the person that's the recipient of the charity that you think is having a problem uh you know trafficking uh, clean water these types of things uh and you go to them and you find out exactly as she said you say you say what is it that we can do to best support you in this community. You get into the trafficking community, it is a mess. It's a mess. You know, you have survivors and you have the the children that are that have been abducted that that really need somebody to go after them. You have prevention, you have the aftercare once somebody's been pulled out. You have when they get older and and now everybody in society looks at them as prostitutes. Right. You have that sort of recovery. You have job placement. You have home uh, placement. You have drug addiction. You have pregnancies. You have, uh, you know, all of these issues. And and in the community, they fight a lot amongst everybody. Really, what they think they're fighting for is resources and, you know, survivors, um, you know, get mad at people who haven't been through it. There's all of this mess um, that goes on in the communities that you're looking to serve. And so a big, big piece of this, if you're going to start a 501c3, is to spend a lot of time, once you've fallen in love with the outcome of your customer trafficking, right? Whether it's rescue, whatever uh, area we were talking about, you go into that community and you find out what is the need? What's the highest level need that, that, that's there? And what you find right now is that you've got a bunch of you know rescue units that are out there that are doing it really to pound their chest. And they're they you know they there's some really really great ones like certain ministries, and there's some that aren't so good um, because they're looking to raise money and really you know get a bunch of limelight and all that other kind of stuff. That's why I ended up with certain ministries. Um, but but at the end of the day, you fall in love with the outcome, and then you also have to fall in love with the outcome of the the donors that you are asking for money, right? What is it that they're looking to achieve? Do they have this occurrence in their own life? Is that why they're passionate about it? Do they want a little bit of the limelight to say that they're helping? Do they want people to see them giving? Do they, you know, do they just want to give because they they're passionate about it? It, You have to find out what that reason is because without one, you don't have the other. They must Mm -hmm. balance each other out. Um, and, And then at the end of the day, you have to set numbers for measurement of success. And if your charity or one that you're supporting does not have a numerical grasp on the problem that they're looking to solve, it is absolutely not going to achieve the outcome because there hasn't been an outcome set. I can tell you, you've told me, Christopher, many times, every four seconds, someone dies of starvation. Every four seconds. Every 11 minutes, there's somebody being abused in their own home, a woman being abused in her own home. There's over 10 million children being trafficked in the world. You have to know these numbers and then dedicate your life to impacting them, bringing them down or you know whatever the, the, the situation is that you happen to be passionate about. So those are the things that I would say in addition to what Doc said. Um, you've got to fall in love with that. And then long term, I would say this. Before you ever get started, it's a mistake that most for-profits make. Sit down and look what and, and create what success looks like at the end of the journey and then work backwards to where you are. If you don't have a destination, you will go everywhere. You'll let people pay, pull you off the path. You'll let defeats, small defeats, crush your spirit. You'll, you'll let not having a donor, you know, just make you throw your hands up. So get to the end of that and then work backwards and make sure that all of the trials and tribulations that you're about to go through are worth it. That's it, brother.
0: Well, I did want people to bring a pencil and a pad of paper for this. So <laughs> there you go.
2: I brought mine. <laughs> I'm yeah. taking notes. Whenever Doc's on, I'm going to take notes from her. Every yeah, time. me
1: too. Me too. I'm taking notes here.
2: And I got the replay. As as down to the river. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> so of course, we now start off, and of course, we have to have volunteers to in order to run a nonprofit, just like again running a business needs needing employees, so is there anything we need to keep in mind when searching for volunteers that again may be different than how we search to hire employees for a business? Is there a difference, or is it still again exactly the same, and what would be that process that um, well, I'll go with Jason first this time.
2: Okay, right. Well, I'll make mine short this time since I took up so much airtime. I will say that, that when you fall in love with the outcome of your donors, you fall in love with yeah. the outcome of the, the community that you're wanting to serve, the next biggest issue is to fall in love with those people's outcomes who come to serve either because they can be paid. They can be paid or they can be uh, um, volunteers. But at the end of the day, you've got to meet all of their needs. And this is the issue with a lot of, of, of charities that I've run into. It's so much of it is about the founder instead of the, the, the community you're serving, the donors and the people that are giving of their time, that, that this crumbles, right? That it always ends in really bad, not always, but often ends in really bad relationships because the founder didn't take into account that being a servant truly means giving everything that you have for the for the betterment and outcome that you know you dig in and you find out and you dedicate your life to that so that that's what i would say about that section of people
0: okay carolyn do you have anything to add to that
1: absolutely uh thank you so much jason for that to add to that is for every organization you know before you start out these are things that you need to look at Who is going to implement this work? As uh, Jason said, you know, when you start out, you need to have the end in mind, you know, and the end in mind would look at your organizational structure, the leadership structure. What structure are you going to adopt? Nonprofits are required by the law to have office bearers, and these are the chairperson, the secretary, and the treasurer. Those are three, but you can still have other board members, you know, like your advisory board members who can come in, subject matter experts, and you can have standing committees and all that. So you need to think through Who is going to implement this work? Of course, board members in many nonprofits are volunteers, and in some countries, you cannot really pay your board members a salary except if they are subject matter experts and they provide a technical support that can be billed to the nonprofit. However... All the board members in nonprofits are usually volunteers. They can be paid a stipend uh, and things like that, you know, to pay for their, you know, travel cost or hotel when they come in or gather congregate for quarterly meetings and so on and so forth. So have that in place, your leadership structure. Have the leadership structure and let it trickle down up to the people who are going to be in the trenches. Who is going to implement this work in the field if you're providing services? If you're Providing commodities or distributing commodities like right now with COVID, there are some nonprofits whose work is really to distribute your uh, uh, personal protection gears or equipment in the communities, your sanitizers, your um, masks, or all these things. And that's what they're doing in the communities. Or sometimes it's even distributing food because people are suffering, you know, they don't have, they don't have food. So, who is going to do this work? develop an organizational structure, an organogram, and have all these roles and responsibilities written. What we do with nonprofits when we do this work under our governance and organizational management unit is we think through everything from the start to the end. How will we implement this program should we have unlimited Uh, amount of money for example you know so you don't limit yourself and say oh for now we only have you know this small amount of money we're starting out this is our structure so you develop a full-blown structure which showcases all the departments that you need as well as the people whether they are there or not is a different question but for now we develop that structure. So the second step is once you have the structure clearly developed and it's a requirement by um, when you're registering your nonprofit, whether it's with IRS in the United States, in Kenya with the NGO board in South Africa with Department for Social Development or with the South African Revenue Services, you, you're required to showcase your structure and the leadership structure and even provide names of people who exist, not just titles, not just roles and responsibilities, provide names of your executive team. Once you have that, then... You have to decide, are these people going to be volunteers for a certain period of time until you get funding, or are they going to be volunteers forever? Because they are nonprofits that are run as voluntary kind of nonprofits. They are nonprofits that are run as the leadership structure, meaning the board members are volunteers, but everybody else under the CEO all the way down to the people who are working in the fields, they are paid staff members. So you can develop that and there are benchmarks on how to pay salaries for nonprofits. And I know some people complain, oh, this nonprofit, they have highly salaried um, um, staff, uh, CEOs or executives they are paid a lot of money, yet, you know, the money comes from donations. So those are benchmarked according to the size of the nonprofit, the impact it's making and its annual revenue. So I know I've said a lot, and maybe we'll we'll unpack it later, but those are the things to look out. But one of the most important things that I always say is values. Whenever you're bringing someone into your fold, into your organization, whether it's a for-profit, non-profit, you need to look at their values. Your values have to be aligned. Your values have to be aligned. Uh, Another thing I will add is think of succession succession plan so today you are the founder in five years time you need to retire and let someone else running who run this organization or maybe a younger person or someone who has fresher ideas and you can remain involved in your organization but most founders suffer from what is called the founder syndrome they don't want to give up the seat i will leave it there because i know we'll talk about it later Mm.
0: Man, I'm just thinking, I hit a gold mine. Yes. <laughs> this info. Oh, man. I need to look back on this and keep writing notes because I've been thinking of
2: looking into a nonprofit myself. Um, do, you know where there, do you know where there's also gold, Christopher? Where? Down by the Riva.
1: <laughs> Are you all going to tease me with that down by the river? <laughs> I can see Robert Buka here saying something about "Down by the River" reminds him of a song.
2: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, song. Yeah, yeah, well, you so sweet. So anyway, I've been, yeah. in I've been all over Africa, and there is a lot of gold in the rivers there.
1: Oh yeah, there mm. is.
0: Yeah, mm. yeah, I haven't been to Africa yet. But anyway, <coughs> course, we need to make system. a plan
1: to get you to Africa. You will it's love hard. it there i don't know I don't know if you will want to come back to the United States after going to Africa. You will love it there
2: yeah when you get out when you get out with the people of Africa and multiple countries, you just fall in love with them. I mean it is, and they fall it's in a, love with you very easily once you get you know yeah. I'm not speaking about the governments and the you know, some <laughs> some of the
1: we're talking about the people.
2: <laughs> the people of Africa are is it, Yeah. Is it
0: kind of like the when I visited the when I went to Cambodia and just met the people there? Kind of like that kind of feeling.
2: Yeah.
1: Very friendly. Mm. Yes. That feeling. Mm. And everyone will want you to come to their house. They will prepare meals for you because that's what we do. That's what we do. Very welcoming. Yeah.
0: Very so, welcoming. Basically Ubuntu philosophy.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, i have to figure out how the how I'm gonna get get over there, but a plane. Of course. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: There's costs involved, Jason.
2: <laughs> I know. Well you were just I was just saying it's a plane. it takes a plane to get to Africa. Yes. Or a boat. <laughs> a boat. Plane, Six boat, months, then Air- <laughs>
0: Airbnb, and wow. then all this other stuff. But, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, of course, we were also leading into how, because of you know different issues in one way or another, a nonprofit with good intentions can end up closing their doors. And according to uh, blog.candid.org in July of last year, a median of 12,042 nonprofits would end up Closing in the absence of a crisis, but with the cause of the, with a certain virus that shall not be named because I don't, I'm afraid of getting tagged by either platforms, (laughs) crisis, an additional 22,000 nonprofits will close because of just that alone. So from what you two have observed with everything that has happened last year, how should nonprofits fortify themselves to make sure they don't end up a part of the future statistics of closing?
2: Um,
1: Yeah.
0: Well, you Um, heard um. (laughs) him.
1: Yeah. Um, Nonprofits, regardless of whether there's a crisis or not, often close or shut down because of lack of funding. And the lack of funding could be poor planning. Uh, lack of risk management strategies that they put they need to put in place to be able to um, to have to keep afloat when there isn't new funding that's forthcoming so one of the things that we do with the nonprofits and work with under our compliance and enterprise-wide risk management unit it's a service that we offer to nonprofits we develop a uh, an enterprise-wide risk management strategy that looks into sustainability of their organization. And you can achieve sustainability in so many different ways. Here we're just talking about financial sustainability. But also nonprofits can close because they did not achieve programmatic sustainability or institutionalization so institutionalized sustainability. I will explain those ones. But first, let's start with uh, financial sustainability. How do you achieve that? By ensuring that you have diversified sources of funding or funding base. By diversifying your funding uh, or sources, you are looking at getting funding from governments or foreign aid. And these are usually large multi-year grants that are very specific to projects that you are implementing. So you can easily get your three year grant, five year grant. Usually they are three to five year grants, sometimes two years. But I would always advise nonprofits, especially smaller ones, to at least get a three year grant. That gives you a breathing room, number one, to showcase your capability in implementing programs as well as achieving an impact, because we know uh, it's really not possible to achieve impact within a shorter time. What you achieve are immediate results, but it's not lasting. So you need to achieve that through your multi-year grants. And that's how you can achieve sustainability within your program, because Once people see that you did a really good job, they will fund you again. And when I say people, I mean donors because donors are just individuals like me and you. Secondly is to look at diversifying funding by its use, meaning there are two different types of funding. There is restricted funding and there is unrestricted funding. Restricted funding is funding that is geared towards a specific project for a specific time or time bound kind of uh, funding. Then unrestricted funding uh, is funding that anyone gives to you, it could be an individual, it could be a corporation, uh, uh, a large organization, rarely do governments give you unrestricted funding. And this is funding that I could give to an organization and say, hey, Christopher Foundation, Here is one million pounds. We believe in the vision. You can do whatever you want to do with this money as long as it contributes to achieving the objectives of your organization. So if you needed to do innovation, you could use it. If you needed to um, uh, to buy cars because you work in the community and you do rescue work and you need to feed the volunteers or travel overseas, you can use it. At the end of the day, what we will ask you is impact. We won't ask you about what you did, meaning the activities. But the restricted funding asks you about what activities did you do. So you cannot Mm. use restricted funding for work that is not agreed upon in your cooperative agreements or contracts with the donor. So sustainability can be achieved. And reasons why many nonprofits are closing down is because they did not raise as much unrestricted funding to help them keep afloat when the restricted funding ran out or even during this time of crisis where there isn't much funding that is coming through. Because what you can do with unrestricted funding, which is my point number three, is you can save it. You can tell the donor, the NGO whisperer, this one million you've given us, can we save a quarter or half of it or three quarter of it into our reserve? and build our reserve so we can have at least 6 to 12 months of operational costs in case there is a disaster, emergency, or anything. Another thing to note is when you have your reserve, make sure that it can support your organization between 6 to 12 months at least because that's how long it takes for you to raise funding. Hmm. I'll, I'll stop there and let uh, Jason add to it.
2: So much gold here. So, Jason, you want to add to the gold pile here? I don't want to add too much to what she said, because she said it all for hmm. the question that you asked. You know, again, I will tie that back into for-profits, which is, it. you know, companies go out of business at the rate of 95% in the first five years of being in business. 50% of them will be gone 12 months after they start. And mm-hmm. charities go out of business faster, at a faster rate than that. And, and the two reasons after study after study has been done at Wharton School of Business, Harvard, Yale, Oxford, always comes down to two things. She lined it out very, very nicely in the charity world and in the charity language to say these two things: a lack of money and a lack of management. Those are the two reasons why they fail. So if you're going to build one, make sure that you've got plenty of money and a way of using it and a budget. You know, one of the things that pulled through my company, Anton J Global, uh, we do consulting for, for businesses. And one of the things that I was most proud of was that all of those businesses had 12 to 24 months of operating capital to be able to weather not only did they have it to weather, but they had it to shift. They had a car dealership that went in, and you know, and and they were seeing a little bit of a downturn at the beginning, so they went into making those plastic shields between everybody. Right, crushed mm-hmm. it, and and so it gives you look excess capital gives you options. Mm-hmm. It gives you mm-hmm. options to be able to innovate and to be able to to. Um, Navigate the world that you don't know what. You, none of us knew COVID was coming. Novid. No, none of us knew 9/11 was coming. None of us. You know, there's all of these things. One thing that we can guarantee is that something's coming all the time. <laughs> so be prepared for it. Take it. You know, really do well in the good times, and and batten down the hatches. Make sure you have something to fall back on. So money and management, and get very very skilled in those two areas uh, prior to you launching.
0: Mm. Yeah, that kind of answered, I guess that kind of answered the next question I was going to ask because, you know, I've read about how many experts recommend that organizations aim to have at least six months of cash in reserve, yet half of them don't even meet that, and that if we include the depreciation of the definition of expenses, then it's 80% of nonprofits out there that have fewer than three months of cash in reserve. And while it could be in a short term, but if something happens long term, <clears throat> that virus it would you know it's gonna become an issue we're seeing right now, and it's like she said, diversifying how we raised money and what do we what what do they need to do to financially stay afloat while... Resolving those issues, and you know, Carolyn already mentioned all the all those methods. But I was curious if there was maybe anything any any more methods besides that, or those are just the main methods of raising the the funding.
2: Yeah, she mentioned you know you've got donors and you've got government, right? Those are those are the main methods. But how you get to those, it's it's numerous. There's Lots of different approaches. There's lots of different grants. There's lots of different, uh, in, uh, uh, you know, three-letter agencies, and there's there's all kinds of different things. And the challenge that I would say, and then I'll give it back to Doc here, is that people try a couple of times and they get told no, and they quit. They just quit. You know, this is why you have to go to the end and be radically dedicated to the outcome that you're trying to achieve with your organization and get committed to it so that success is non-negotiable when it's non-negotiable you'll find the money you'll find the money there's plenty of money out there so that's my answer on it
0: uh mike uh, you mute
1: Oh, I agree with you 100%. Um, one of the things that I, now we are teaching nonprofits, especially the ones who come to us to say we are running out of money and we don't know what to do, is to help them to put a resource mobilization plan in place where they identify funders in different categories. You know, we have governments, we have um, uh, cooperations. We have large family foundations like your the famous now, very famous now. Everybody knows about it. The Bill and Melinda Gates, you know, and all those foundations. And look into each and every one of them. And one and one source of funding that is really great, and many organizations do not tap into, is individual donors. Individual donors are donors like me and you who give funding and they could give £10, $10 per month and commit to give every month for at least 12 months or six months, whichever. When you have a large base of individual donors who have bought into the mission and the vision of your organization, you are raising unrestricted funding that could go a long way in building the reserves for your organization. So as much as we're going after government funding, which is multi-year, don't forget the people who have bought into the vision and the mission of the work that you do make sure you have individual donors who are committed. And there are ways in which you can motivate them even during times of crisis like now. There are people who are still giving. They're still giving, even though they themselves feel like, you know, they have needs. But people are just generous. And I've come to find out, regardless of where people come from, people are generous. Today, um, we were talking about a crowdfunding platform in South Africa to help South African students raise um, university fees and pay for their fees. And what was clear in my interview with um, the organization is called Phoenix with um, Ms. Liana Dibia, the CEO of this organization, she said Africans are very generous when it comes to paying for education for others. People will go into their pockets and give and say you know what, I may not be the richest person but when it comes to paying for education for that young man or that young woman, I am willing to commit a 100 rand, 10 pounds 10 dollars and all that. So don't forget your individual donors.
0: Hmm. <clears throat> Interesting. Kind of taking that all in along with seeing Robert's comments here. <laughs> I mean, this mm-hmm. is really, really long one I'm afraid of putting up since it might take up half the screen here. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things I also have noticed with, you know, donors is the hesitancy towards donating in the first place with some people. And from someone I know that has donated his time to a fundraising event, it's financial integrity so knowing that their dollar is going exactly where it said it would go with every single penny yet you sometimes get stories such as uh, EduCap and Inc uh, this multi-billion dollar student loan charity with charging excess excessive interest and in abusing tax exemptions so that its ceo and her husband can have these luxurious perks and there's also this issue of how much of what they raise in charities and fundraisers are actually going towards what they promote and not gobbled up by administration, administrative costs that end up seeing very little actually going towards these missions. So what are some steps that they need to make in order to show that, hey, you can actually trust us with donating your dollars, like gain that trust, especially with all the bad publicity that, that has gone over the years? So uh, which one to pick? <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go random, Carol.
1: Okay. Um, so nonprofits are required by law to showcase or to provide their financials, audited financial statement, and make them public. So any nonprofit that refuses to show that is going against the law. They're required to make it public. When you go to their websites, they should have a place where it says legal documents, financial statements available for download, and you can download it anytime. Why is that so? Because this is public-funded, a public-funded institution, and it needs to be accountable first and foremost to itself, the leadership, the people they serve, and the government. So they need to be compliant to those rules and regulations. If you want to give to a nonprofit, whether you are a big donor like your US government, UK government and all that, they usually ask for audited financial statements. They are things that they scrutinize and see how funding is spent. When you look at a financial statement for any organization, you will know where the source of income all the revenue is coming from, you will know how it is spent by category or large categories and all that. You will know what their assets are, their liabilities. And if they are um, going in the negative, operating in the negative, meaning they are operating at a loss because a nonprofit can operate at a loss, meaning they are, their expenses are more than their income, you will see that. Hmm. So, For decisions to be made on how or why we should fund a nonprofit and all that, all those things are put into consideration, just like any other business, and decisions are made. As an individual, as a a private uh, uh, foundation, or as as a major gift donor, these are people who are who give a lot of money, but it comes from one source, you know, like someone could, could write a check for $200,000 or $2 million or $5 million to an, to an organization, but as an individual. Those usually have very stringent due diligence process. So the long and short of this is conduct your due diligence check the annual financial statements. Another thing to check is the annual report. The annual report is a summary of the successes the organization has achieved within a year. Check for their impact. What is their mission? What are are they saying they want to do in the community? What outcomes do they want to achieve? Are they achieving it? If they say they want to change people's lives, and they are not doing it, then that they're not doing what they promised people to do. So those are things to look at before you make the decision to fund an organization. Now, when it comes to the high salaries that um, you, you mentioned, I know some people have a problem with some of these really large nonprofits, multi-million dollar, some of them are actually billion dollar nonprofits that pay high salaries. Some of the reasons why, not the only reason, but some of the reasons why this is so is because these are highly qualified individuals who might as well have been running large uh, cooperations. And the work that they do is not just non-profit. It's very strategic and all that. And they can justify why they are paying these high salaries and for some people, they'll be like, "Why are they earning so much salary?" Is because their annual revenue can justify how much money they're raising. I'm just sharing that just in case you wonder why these nonprofits still exist. Why are they being funded? Is because of that. So there are nonprofits that raise for any project they have. There's 600 million dollar projects. The people managing those projects, some of them. Are people who used to work in banks and have now switched to work in the nonprofit sector, and while they are working in the nonprofit sector, their salaries seem high and you know may raise eyebrows for people and you wonder why they're earning so much salaries, the expertise they bring to the field. You might have doctors, yes, they might not earn the same amount of money as the doctors who work in private practice, but their salaries will generally be higher. Than a field officer working in a rural area.
2: Hmm.
0: Okay. Jason, you have anything to add to that?
1: Yeah, my
2: again, this is a personal opinion. This isn't a, a practice of of, of um, an organization. My personal, after I've been in this for as many years as I've been, if if you get a chance, go to the events that they put on. Meet the founders, meet the volunteers, find the the people that have actually uh, participated in whatever they say they're doing, right? If you can, right? In trafficking, that's a little uh, that's a more a little bit more difficult, but but find those people that they say that they've been helping uh, for the biggest part, because Doc makes a really good point here about needing to attract the level of talent sometimes for some of these projects that wouldn't exist at a volunteer level and Mm -hmm. being able to track that in for a bit. The founders, what I have found is the founders and the people that are running these organizations. If you go to their, if they, if this is their only source of revenue and they're rich because of it, that is something that turns me off. I'm, I'm giving my personal opinion here. Not, it it just makes it seem like this is the wrong, the wrong reason for doing this. I personally have never taken a dime uh, for managing, for running CEO of a feed a billion. I've never taken a a dime. Not only that, but I pay for my own stuff. I pay for my own travel. I pay for my own hotels. You know, I donate X amount every single year myself. Um, And, and, why I do that is because it keeps my intentions pure, right? Whenever you throw money in as a, but there's people that make this their lifestyle and they need to sustain their lives. And I, that's one thing, right? There's people that have been able to make money in their life that can do this and, and give and donate and, and of all of their time. And then you have the people that get in that we need that need it to pay, take care of their family right? And then you have this other level, which is very rare. It's not too many people out there, but if an organization is getting rich off of the work they're doing, they are wasting resources that could be used for solving the problem that they started the charity for in the first place. If you have a $10 million home because you're running a charity, you're stealing. It's my opinion.
1: Hmm. And I agree with that. If you use a nonprofit as a money-making venture or business, then you're committing fraud. It's as simple as that. You must have committed fraud because funding that comes through and the salary that you're paid is not to buy mansions. Of course, if you have other businesses and you can prove that you are in property business and that's how you got your money, Mm -hmm. that's well and good. But if that is the only source of income, and you have a $10 million mansion and you're driving Lamborghinis and Ferraris, Mm-mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. that's fraud. There has to be, we have to do an audit there to check and see. Forensic audit has to be done to make sure that it's not money that's mm. coming from funding. I did a research on that, you know, spoke with many donors. That's what I studied then at, at the master's level. My research was really on rules, regulations and compliance interviewed so many funding agencies, you know, that I used to work with the organization that I used to work with, you know, did a case study and it was very clear fraud can happen in any organization large or small. And sometimes these large organizations, you think, oh, they have proper systems and processes. There's more fraud happening in those organizations than the smaller organizations that are starting out.
2: Yeah. Because you you see a lot, you know, some of them, they combine with government entities and there's, it's not just fraud, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's um, they, they sort of, you know, they kind of coordinate their efforts they use it for a tax shelter for this business. You know, um, I won't, I'm not going to name names tonight because that's not why we're here. But there are organizations that are very large and very well recognized that are doing this today,
1: mm-hmm. you know,
2: and, and they're very, very big, very well known. So, but, but again, my point, and I think Doc's point is do your due diligence on who it is, fall in love with their, their outcome, you know, or your own outcome and run it right. Just run it with the with with God's love and 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 um, the mentality of service, and you're never going to run into in, into any problems because I believe that that pure intent it it helps a lot uh, with hmm. what you're looking to do. So I keep it that that simple. That's how I'll wrap it up.
0: Hmm. So now we're getting back to the people starting off the nonprofit, and you know. We have to get donors, but we also have to keep them engaged as well to keep on going. So what are some some things we should do and keep in mind that, you know, retain and keep the donors in, engaged and feeling that they're involved that the the hard uh, hard spent money is ac- actually making a difference? So well, I'll go with... Jason first
2: <laughs> trying to go, point the right direction. I, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning where we, when we started, um, you know, mm. in this final 10 minutes that we have together, uh, what I want to do is I want to make sure that we fall in love mm. with those donors outcomes, right? Mm. That's how you keep that, whether it's a large group, whether it's a family home office, whether it's you know a, a government, government agency, um, individual donors are really gonna be the lifeblood. I think the big chunks come from the government, but you can't count on those long-term, so on and so forth. But if you fall in love with their outcome, because there's two types, and I'll just tell anybody watching this for these purposes, there's two types of individual donors. The type that like to be recognized for the donation that they make, recognize the crap out of them. Don't look at them and go, oh, you're just in this because you wanna be patted on the back pat the hell out of their back like mention them on facebook posts and give them all of the love that that they're looking for because that is why they're donating don't it's not a judgment thing that money the money is going to go to do the thing that you want to do with your charity you don't have to worry about if it's coming in from an ego based person or a service based person it doesn't matter you need that, that cash flow for you to be able to, to survive. Now, the other type of person is somebody that wants to give anonymously. And when they want to give anonymously, that's usually something religious, a religious reason, uh, because they're a well-known person. They don't want to, to put their name out as far as supporting something like that. There's different reasons why people want to be anonymous. Find out what that deeper reason is and make sure that you're supporting it, right? Oh, my mom died of cancer. I don't, wanna, I don't want uh, to put my name out there, but I want to support this cause, right? Every, every time the check comes in or every time they donate, just send them out a thank you note. Know. You know, your mom is really impacting our, our uh, organization. Every single time you send us money, it's helping sustain us. Thank you, right? Whatever that is, it's, it's important, So many people get into charity work and into business uh, for themselves. That's why 95% of them fail in the first five years. You've got to be focused on other people's outcomes. You have to become a servant, period.
1: Absolutely. To add to that, just to remember anyone who is giving you money is really your customer so people always think oh the beneficiaries or the people who are benefiting are the customer no the funders are actually paying you so they are the customer if you think of a business the person who's paying you is the customer so we need to make the customers happy so whether it's uh, um, acknowledging them in public or in private you need to do that and that's why For every organization, I am going to emphasize this tonight. Make sure that you have individuals that have been assigned the role of donor relationship management. If they are a group of individual donors, have a group of people who knew them. So for example, if we are individual donors for your foundation, Christopher D. Carson Foundation, and uh, Jason is, an, is a donor and I am a donor, there's someone who brought in Jason. Let that person manage the relationship. The person will know when Jason's birthday is. They will send Jason a nice birthday on, on Facebook, And do a post on the organization's page and say, oh, one of our funders, Jason Cisneros, is celebrating his birthday. Oh, he's celebrating his anniversary. Oh, this and that. Oh, they have a little girl. They have a little boy. And all those things. Because those are the things that really make these people feel like, wow, these people. It's not just about the money. They really care about me. And we're not just doing this to show off. It's really coming from a point of view of, at the end of the day, we are individuals and we yearn for relationships. So whether I'm giving you funding or, or I'm supporting your program and being and championing it as a board member, all that, appreciate the person, appreciate the individual. Because we, at the end of the day, remember, donors are just people like me and you We yearn for genuine friendships. Be friends with your funders. Lastly, communicate. If there's a problem, communicate. If there's a need to use the money in a way that was not agreed upon, communicate in advance, two or three months in advance, and say, due to the current situation, the funding that was supposed to be for training, can we use it to provide food parcels? Because we can't even train people because they're not coming into the facility, but they're telling us they're hungry. Can we turn that money around and use it for food parcels? Many donors will say, definitely, yes, just send us the adjustment and reallocation, and you can do that. So I'm going to end it there, because I know we have less than five minutes to go.
0: Already? <laughs> oh, man, blue have it just flew by, and I still have a couple of questions. Left. It's like, which one to go with? Uh,
1: we can do a part two, just so you know.
0: Yeah, we could. We could do a part two, just like we we should do a part Jason two. I'm
1: Jason before I asked him. <laughs> <laughs> as long as we do it,
2: down by the river.
1: Absolutely.
2: <laughs> you know, I'm probably going to take a trip down by
0: the river, like that pull Absolutely. off a of bit later this weekend. <laughs>
2: I love, um, I I love, I love your accent. (laughs) I love it. It's fantastic. This is a
1: mix of Kenyan, South African, and now a little bit of Mm. British. There isn't much British accent in me yet, but a little bit of Mm. Kenyan and South African accent.
2: Where are you you from or where are you at right now? Where are you located? I
1: am in Manchester United Kingdom, but I am Kenyan and I've lived in South Africa for over 10 years.
2: I thought when we did, because I was on your show at one point in time. Was we, that you were we were in South
1: Africa. Africa in a studio? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. I love Gosh, South Africa. That? Bantry Absolutely. Bay is one of the most beautiful places on the face of the planet.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh.
0: And now I have no idea what you guys are talking about, but maybe eventually.
1: <laughs> we're talking about Cape Town, one yes. of the most beautiful oh, cities yeah. in the world. Yeah. That is mm-hmm. my home in South Africa.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I've- they have a fish there, Christopher, called King Clip.
1: King Clip, yeah.
2: King Clip. It's, one, it's, it's nowhere else in the world, and it's where the two oceans come together. Mm-hmm. It's the only place you can ever get it. And I, when I go, I'm, I'm like, what do you want for breakfast, King Clip? What do you want for lunch, King Clip? What would you like for dinner? King Clip. <laughs> I can eat it every day And you year. can
1: eat it anywhere. You yeah. can eat it by small restaurants by the uh by the by the beach. You can eat it in five star restaurants everywhere. you find king
0: a, a shame I don't eat meat.
2: So <laughs> that's kind and of this one would probably change your mind. <laughs> especially with butter and salt and pepper oh my
1: god <laughs>
0: you're thinking of a midnight snack
2: aren't you carol when-
1: i am missing that food people
2: <laughs> Yeah. It's one thing i loved about south africa the food was unbelievable especially in cape town though really oh, yeah in cape town. Mm-hmm
0: yeah that reminds me of childhood when I was obsessive with just studying ge- geographical maps and memorizing flags. and the one flag that always stood out for me was Kenya with that shield. and I oh, I remember it being my favorite flag since all the others were just colored stripes and it's like, okay, yeah. kind of boring. <laughs> so, so um uh, yeah, um again, we should there's so much to talk about with this topic, and um, you know. For anyone that might want to be able to contact you to learn more about this, uh, how can they contact you, uh, Carol?
1: They can reach out to us at NGOWhisperer.com. And uh, we actually have a fellowship program uh, that we are starting in July. And today, being the 17th here, it's said the 17th year in Manchester. For you guys, it's still the 16th. The deadline is the 17th of June 2021, midnight hour time, which might be about uh, 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Please go to our website, and apply to be one of our 2021 fellows, where we will take all these things we talked about. We will take you through the process of setting up a nonprofit and managing a nonprofit, looking at how to raise funds, how to build a proper system uh, and uh, proper uh, processes and procedures that are required for you to run a sustainable nonprofit, thinking. The end in mind and what do you do mm. after you close down your nonprofit? so reach out to us ngo that's where you can find us you can find me on social media and under caroline a opinde
0: okay and uh i'm pretty sure jason has a way of of contacting him so Spell it out. How do how how do, how do we contact to see, I'm
2: you? I'm gonna give you a. Uh, I'm gonna try to mess you up because you you think you have this already dialed in. <laughs> so I'm gonna say thebaldavenger.com. Did you have that on there? No, no, it wasn't the one
0: you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you, you screwed me over. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I have a lot of them to pull from. Uh, first thing that I wanted to say to Doc is. You're you are so well prepared and so good at what you do. I hope people look you up. You are one of the true professionals in the industry. Uh, you work on this constantly and you can tell just by your professionalism tonight. So I just wanted every everybody to know I have a deep respect for you. Um, Thank you. Secondarily, I hope that me just um, giving you those compliments gets me on the cover of your magazine at some point in time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll even pose down by the Riva. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Christopher, yeah, great show, brother. Um, yeah. yeah. Anybody that wants to reach out to me, um, we do multiple different things. Uh, um, again, my, my biggest passion right now is, is in the world of trafficking. And mm-hmm. um, we're on call pretty much 24-7 on that. Uh, always looking for funding and, uh, and looking for families that are in need, that are looking for their children. Um, CERT Ministries takes zero money from the victim and never will and never has uh it's completely funded for for those people that need them um feed a billion is feedabillion.org and you can you can go there and and uh donate we we work in india we work all over africa uh that type of thing but um first and foremost thanks brother, brother brother christopher for the show you put on thanks for your heart thanks for the work that you put in to this show and uh and for your heart really love you brother thanks
0: Well, I'll, I'll get to mine now so <laughs> just to <laughs> prevent myself from pausing, but again, Facebook, Instagram through autistic eyes official and uh, oh wait, I'm I'm still working on the website so don't go there yet just little upgrades here and there just to fine-tune it a bit, but I believe the Patreon's still up so if you decide to you know be able to, donate in order to keep the show going that's that's also optional although you know for the non-profits that someone here spoke of (laughs) so uh and uh again great great show definitely need to get another episode going of part two just like i need to do the part one with the speaker world as, as well on top of that i just need to figure out when but until hey on, then,
2: Christopher, you forgot to give how people get in contact with the, our fourth guest, your hair.
1: Oh, yeah.
2: Does it have a website <laughs> of its own? It should. <laughs> it's, it's got its own zip code now.
0: <laughs> it's fancyguruhair.com. There you go. There you go. go. <laughs> All
2: right. There thanks you Thanks,
1: brother. Go. Appreciate anyway,
0: you. Anyway, thanks again. And again, this is Christopher D. Casson signing off. So take care, everyone.
1: Thank you. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.
0: Bye, Doc.